Hi there, I'm Neve Shaw and this is Humans of Space, a podcast about curious people. More specifically, it's chats with people that I've met along the journey so far in getting to space. People from many parts of the world, people who've inspired me, people who do interesting things, know interesting stuff, have figured out great things, or people who want to change the world. Curious people who are happy to chat with me about their lives, their passions, and explore together what drives us to be the people we need to be. I like to think that Humans of Space is a blend of space, science, curiosity and creativity for ears of all kinds. But I guess that's up to you to decide. My guest today is Michael Interbartolo, and he's been working for over 24 years at NASA Johnson Space Centre. I first met Mike at the Cross Industry Innovation Summit, of which he is vice chair. And he is a very fascinating person, and I'm delighted to be talking to him today on Humans of Space. Mike, how are you? How's it going over there? Uh, excellent. Excellent. Uh, we're doing okay over here in the, the chaos and uh are you working from home still or can you go back on campus no, at, at Johnson uh, yet? The, the center is still pretty much in a, a high state of telework only and just to limit the folks on site who are critical for mission control and keeping them safe and minimizing their contact with others. So uh, pretty much most of the space center is on um, telework and, and at least for the next month, they have no plans uh, to start talking about bringing any more folks on board. And so, of course, Johnson Space Center is in Houston. So what time is it where you are right now? Uh, it's 10.30 in the morning. 10.30. So it, we have a six-hour difference between here and there. And is it a nice day? What's it like out there? Uh, it feels like we're on the surface of the sun. It's uh, the, the temperature is about 98. And then with the heat index, it's a good 105, I think, out. The, this week is a pretty scorcher of a week. Uh, they're talking wow. 110 with heat index by the end of the week. Well, we have a sunny day today, but I was outside. It was very windy. It's quite cold. You know, there's, there's always a wind chill <laughs> in Ireland, even on sunny days. You know, you always need to bring a jumper. And lockdown is is OK. It's going OK. You guys are safe and everything. Yeah, the, the family's staying safe. Uh, we're trying to minimize going out as much as possible. And yeah. it's just tragic to see the cases continue to rise in the area. Yeah. All right. Well, you, you stay safe. And, and thanks so much for your time today. I know you're a very busy person. So I know you do many, many things and you wear many hats and that's how I know you. Could you give us just a brief summary of the work that you are involved in at, at the Johnson Space Center? Sure. Uh, these days I'm working on the human landing system. So that's the lunar lander we're building for returning to the moon in 2024. So I'm part of the crew compartment team. So that's sort of the, the part of the spacecraft where the crew will live inside, um, all their displays, controls, uh, life support system, basically the, the interior living part of the lander. Um, I'm also the project manager for the Lunar Lou Challenge, which we have up there um, for the next couple of weeks on Hero X, which is crowdsourcing ideas for how to make a smaller, compact toilet that can work for the lander system to work in both microgravity as well as the six and a half days on the surface of the moon. So it's a, been a great challenge for the uh, world community to ideate and help us come up with ideas outside the box of what we're used to and sort of toilet mechanisms. Um, I also do uh, some innovation culture stuff here at JSC. Uh, we run a book club uh, at work where we get together and discuss different uh, culture and uh, innovation type topics. 
And then I also, as you said, I, I help with the Cross Industry Innovation Summit, which mm-hmm. brings in mm-hmm. titans of industry, thought leaders like yourself, uh, to talk mm-hmm. about innovation from various perspectives to help uh, infuse some of that thinking in at NASA as well. I continually go back to you time and time again. Like if ever I have anything to report or if I ever asked to write anything about, about NASA, I always I always go to you because I think you also do a fair bit of work in outreach, don't you, and communicating to the the general public about some of the activities at JSE. Yeah, I also chair the uh, the the panels that we put on for our local Comic Con every year. Uh, sadly, this year it was canceled due to all this. Uh, usually, it's Memorial Day weekend here in Houston. It's about fifty thousand folks uh, come in from around the world. And uh, we have three days of NASA topics there. We try to make them relevant to the the Comic-Con pop culture community, not, you know, highly technical talks and all that. Yeah. Um, I also have worked with uh, the Canadian folks, uh, Felix and Paul Studios, for a VR, Cinemac VR. They filmed here on Earth, and now they're filming, wrapping up uh, on the space station as well, which will be a, a, a great immersive experience for folks to experience what life on the space station is like. When I was at the Innovation Summit, you gave me a little taster of that VR. It's incredible. Um, it's really, really good. Is that available for people or where can people get access to that or will it ever be made public? Yeah, so the Space Explorer Season 1, which was the two episodes, uh, each are about 20 minutes or so filmed on the Earth uh, with the astronauts talking about space exploration at different NASA centers and, and at SpaceX as well as uh, over in Russia training. So those two episodes are available on the Oculus platform, and they were going to try to move it to all the platforms as well. But So that's a 360 3D cinematic VR experience. And then the ISS experience, those episodes I think are going to start rolling out later this year. I think they want to start releasing them closer to when they're going to actually film a spacewalk outside with their 360 camera. uh, By the end of this year, hopefully some of those episodes will start rolling out, and that'll give you really... Um, life aboard the space station. They followed the expeditions of David St. Jock, Jessica Meir, and several of the other astronauts. And so it just helps folks understand and feel like they're there on the space station because it is 360 virtual reality. And so you feel like you're working side by side with the astronaut and just going through life with them aboard their expeditions on the space station. Well, I had a taster of it. They had a little taster of it at the Astronautical Congress that I attended in Washington last year. And I was like, I actually felt weightless when I was watching it. So I'm really excited to see that. And of course, Jessica is one half of the old female spacewalk that took place late last year as well. So yeah, we got good footage of that as well. Um, I think them suiting up and getting ready to go out and come back in for the for the spacewalk and all that. Yeah. So oh Jessica my gosh. was part of the first season on the ground. And then it was great to see her then on the space station as well. So she could talk about, uh, you know, how the training then, you know, prepared her for life aboard the space station. And she actually used the um, footage because we lent her one of the VR headsets for a while. And she'd always try to describe to her friends and family what training was like. But then that Space Explorers first season on the ground really helped just put the folks in the room with her and really experience what the training was like so they better understood in that 20 minutes more than she could try to explain to them in an hour of talking. So it's been a great outreach uh, opportunity for folks to really experience what NASA does, where we're going with exploration and, and what it's like to be an astronaut. I think it's going to be really impactful and I can't wait to get my hands on it. It's a really exciting time for space exploration, isn't it? I mean, the recent launch by SpaceX and NASA of two of the uh, commercial crew 
that got a lot of viewership and it feels like things are progressing really fast all of a sudden. Would that be fair to say or, or is that just us looking on? No, I think it is starting to pick up a little bit of pace in terms of the innovation and, and all the new partnerships we have with SpaceX and Boeing to do the commercial crew. Uh, we've had the great relationships with SpaceX and Northrop Grumman uh, for Orbital's cargo delivery for almost a decade now um, in terms of delivering commercial cargo to the space station. And now we've got the lander program awarding three contracts to SpaceX Blue Origins team and Dianetics to talk about going back to the moon in 2024. And then you have just the rise of the different commercial space companies out there beyond that in terms of Axiom looking at taking over part of the space station and putting up a private module there. So I think there is sort of an acceleration now of commercial space taking a foothold in low Earth orbit like we've always wanted them to do so we can push out further to go to the moon and Mars. It's serious what's happening in the Artemis mission, which is the first leg of the mission to uh, return to the moon. That's happening and that's happening on the ground. And as you just said, there are lots of contracts that have been awarded to different private companies in order for you to do that. In terms of a timeline, when do you think, as you called it to me, is footprints on the moon will happen, Mike? So my countdown clock says we have 1,471 days left. <laughs> uh, so what year is that? I think the official timeline, um, uh, I'm set more in a July to give us a little bit of uh, schedule margin there, but I think the the official um, launch dates for when the landing would occur are they're looking more at an October, November 2024 timeframe. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's it's not that long. Um, I remember when the countdown clock used to say 2,500 days. So it's uh, definitely picking up the pace now and runway is running out. Um, but yeah, it's a great time. It, it's exciting to work on a new program like this, work with our commercial partners and look at their innovative designs. I mean, the lander program is pretty much all about embracing that commercial capability and looking for the innovation they can bring to it. If you look at the the very designs between the SpaceX Starship, the Blue Federation, which yeah. is a three-element lander, and then the Dianetics, um, which is more of a horizontal landing, sort of similar to the Space 1999 Eagle in terms of mm. a little bit of little feel with drop tanks and stuff like that. I mean, it's very different ways to get to the moon, but they're all excited about the opportunity to try to get there by 2024 to the south pole of the moon for the first female and the next male and, yeah. and we're looking forward to take, going along the journey with them what's it like going into work every day you must like i mean the, what you're just saying is so incredible to hear that you know going back to the moon and you know you just spew out all these things and they're just mind-blowing all the different activities that are going on so what's it What's it like going to work every day at JSC? I mean, are you grounded or does it just feel like, yeah, same day? You know? uh, no, it's, it, it's a little different, but um, it, it's not as exciting as probably folks have in their heads right now because we're just at the start. You know, the contracts were awarded in April and obviously we've all been on telework and all that. Um, so we haven't started seeing like mock-ups show at the facility yet. Um, by the fall, I think some of that will start coming in. Um, at this point, because it's such a distributed system within the NASA, as well as the commercial companies are all distributed around, it's a lot of meetings on telecons and stuff like that. So it's yeah. it's not as glamorous as we, you know, where we're in a mock-up and, and, and talking. I think we'll get there eventually in the next year or so where we'll start, you know, doing meetings in a mock-up, trying to talk through, okay, if this is the cockpit and displays, what is the crew really, can they reach in, in their suits during power descent or 
or how do they really maneuver around here for living in this cabin for six and a half days. Um, right now, it's just that initial barrage of getting everybody up to speed on what the concepts are from the vendors, as well as what the requirements and design and construction standards are from the NASA side. So it's it's a little bit of bureaucracy right now, but it, yeah. it definitely is exciting to go into work every day and say, hey, I'm working on something that hopefully in the next 1,471 days will get a woman and man on the South Pole of the Moon. The recent launch with Crew Dragon, with Crew Dragon 2, I mean, I know that happened during lockdown, but just as an example, I mean, <laughs> your mission control is right there in the same facility that you work in. What's that like? Um, so it is, yeah. Uh, it, before the lockdown, every so often, um, and before the Apollo uh, mission control got renovated and, and, and made into a, a, a high-end um, 1969 retro um exhibit for the the public yeah. i used to go in and just you know once in a while just especially when i was working the space shuttle program you, you just go in and sit in that room and just think of the history and, and the the awesome responsibility we had about you know lives are in our hands billion dollar spacecraft are in our hands and all that i think um for the spacex you know the team here at nasa did a great job working with the spacex partners but their mission control is out in hawthorne and the mm. launch you know complex down at kennedy and stuff like that so the team here was really dedicated to just the ISS side of that, yeah. ready to receive the vehicle and ensure that everything was meeting all its checkpoints along the way to know that they had a space safe vehicle before they got in close proximity to the space station for docking. But it's just so steeped in history. I mean, you know, the fact that you on your lunch break before it was obviously renovated into a kind of a into more of an exhibition space that you could just pop down to the old mission control where all those Apollo missions took place where we first got people on the moon and that's on your facility. And then, you know, the mission control for the International Space Station that I saw with you that time that I was at, at Johnson, you were at the root centre of where things are a reality. It's a lot of us that, you know, have a passion for space and we've watched the moon landings on TV played over and over again. But to be actually at the, at the nerve centre of where all those activities take place where there are daily communications to the International Space Station, to the crew, checking in with them. You've got Capcom there um, and you are part of it and you've been an integral part of all of it for 24 years. Like, what's that like? It's hard to describe. Um, you know, I started back my first flight for the Space Shuttle program was in 2000, SDS 96, I believe. And you know, it, I was in the back room, so I wasn't in the front room there, but my dad wanted to come down to just be there with me and stuff like that. And so he called the congressman up to, you know, get permission because during launch, you had to be on the director's guest list to be in the viewing area for mission control. And they were like, but the shuttle launches from Kennedy. Why, why do you want to be in Johnson? He's like, because my son's there and stuff. So it was, it was really just moving yeah. just to know he wanted to be in the room. Yeah, I can imagine, Mike. I can imagine. I think sometimes maybe because you're there every day, you probably take it for granted. But knowing you and how great a communicator you are, that's really special. And it's like why I'm kind of dying to talk to you all the time about it. No, yeah. You know, I worked that first shuttle mission uh, yeah. because of where the manifested. We were at a concert, me and my buddy, and he's like, I can't believe you launched seven people into space this morning. I was like, I know, this is ridiculous. <laughs> five at the time and you know you're you're responsible for this billion dollars spacecraft and seven people's lives in your hands and making sure that the 
the vehicle gets to orbit and and you know does its mission and it, it, it's an awesome responsibility and that's why we have the you know the foundations of Mich- michigan troll you know to always be vigilant to, that you know people's lives are in your hands and to yeah. always be looking for the unknown unknowns and the next worst failure because it, yeah. it is a big responsibility and it's nothing you really trained for in college at least unless college has changed since i went you know there was there was really no how to be a flight controller mission control uh when i went to school and stuff like that what does a flight controller do just just tell us a little bit about that job so they're broken down into different subsystems. Uh, so I was a GNC flight controller. So that was the space shuttle's guidance navigation control system. So where the vehicle was going to go, how it was going to get there, and um, what the systems had it doing along the way. So like the digital autopilot, yeah. which you know kept the vehicle in the right attitude. Um, my first mission was asset entry control. So that was the space shuttle's aero surfaces, the main engine gimbals, the the ohms uh, orbital maneuvering systems gimbals. So to make sure that any of those burns were pointed in the right direction and that the the engine kept firing in the right direction. So for launch and landing, it made sure that the vehicle got to orbit in control. And then, you know, during the landing sequence that the vehicle was able to be that falling brick and glide through the atmosphere back to the landing site and all that. And then there were other aspects of it. You know, each subsystem had multiple people between the front room and the back room. So yeah. that's how it's broken up and stuff. Is it stressful? Was it a stressful job? It's more the training is more stressful than the actual mission um, because you train so hard for all those unknown unknowns and, and failure modes and making sure you're prepared for the, the Apollo 13 scenario that you didn't think of that a mission itself can be pretty benign, you know, because everything's going well, the vehicle's operating fine, there's no failures. But uh, a four-hour training session like for launch and landing training back in the shuttle days would be about six runs to orbit. So, you know, because it only takes eight and a half minutes for the shuttle yeah. to yeah. launch. And so you do multiple runs with abort scenarios in there or, you know, different failures to force you to take it abort or try to work around the failure to still make it orbit and all that. And that's where they train you, you know, because yeah. uh, back when they were building mission control, they knew that the computer technology, they couldn't keep up with it because of the capital investment. So it was all about training the uh, flight controllers to be able to handle it as the computers, you know, were being outpaced and stuff like that. So, you know, you had mainframe computers back in the Apollo era and the shuttle era through 1994. And then we got to deck alpha workstations, which gave us color displays and displays that, you know, could turn yellow to sort of catch your attention in your scan pattern. Cause you're looking at about four monitors. And so you're looking at all this data, you know, so a color, like a yellow would catch your eye to show, mm-hmm. hey, this this sensor is getting a little out of whack. You know, maybe you need to do something in red if it really went bad and stuff like that. So the simulations and training is really like the crucible to break you down, make sure your communication skills and you know what your failure impact workarounds are, as well as where your problem fits in the larger picture of the room. There's, there's a lot of that situational awareness that has to be uh, taught in there because you may have a small sensor problem, but the vehicle may be coming apart and you're not the high priority to, to save the vehicle at that point. And so then the, the actual missions can be pretty benign and, and everything is kind of, I don't want to say boring, but it just is nine hours of watching the data, making sure the crew's on the timeline and that they're safe and that they're going fine, but you're not really working any big problems depending on how your subsystem is yeah. operating. How long would you be on the desk at any one time? 
Uh, typically, we do three nine-hour shifts a day. So that gives you, with an hour handover at the beginning and in the end, that covers the 24 hours in a day. So it's, you know, a shuttle mission was about 14 to 16 days, depending on weather at the end mm -hmm. of the mission. So you would work, um, typically, we didn't work more than 12 days in a row. Uh, they would give you a break and bring in a team four to, to sort of rotate and shake things up just because uh, we found that after 12 days, sometimes folks got a little fatigued, especially, you know, because the prime working hours could be midnight to 9 a.m. and yeah, stuff like that. Yeah. So it's not a nine to five job. It's it's shift work and it's, you know, depending on overall mechanics and other ground stations and what payload you're flying, you know, the prime hours could be in the middle of the night. So it's, it's tough to stay on that for too long. Um, and, and not go a little bit stir crazy and, yeah. and start to zone out. Yeah. Was it competitive to get that role? Did, did you have to prove yourself in order to be considered for that role? Or was it one of the very first things that you did when you joined? So I actually started at the Goddard Space Flight Center up in Maryland uh, mm -hmm. while I was in grad school as a volunteer. And so mm -hmm. from 96 through 98, I was up there in Maryland. And then in 98, the Johnson Space Center was ramping up to get ready to start um, building the space station. So they needed a more flight controller. So I got recruited to come down to JSC. I got put in the GNC group. And then it's all just how you do. You have to be self-motivated to go through the workbooks, to sit on console and do the on-the-job training and side saddling to learn the system. And, and um, there's different training um, workbooks and guides along the way. And then you have your cert sims, which, like I said, throws the kitchen sink at you. And so usually there's only one person in each flow at a time. So I got assigned to asset entry control for my first uh, position. Another guy was backroom orbit or, or sensor, stuff like that. So for the GNC, since there was five positions total, you could have five people in their different flows at the same time. So it was kind of competitive into when when you finished a cert, which cert you would go into yeah. next, next in line for the orbit front room or would it be better for you just to go to um, the next backroom position for uh, launch and landing because that was coming open and stuff like that. But then you had to pass those certifications to then get qualified and then you get your, your mission assignments from there. How long did it take to get that cert then? Uh, back in the shuttle days, let's see. So I started July 5th, 1998 and my first mission was September of 2000. So the first cert uh, back in the shuttle days took about, you know, about a year and a half, mm -hmm. two years. Um, some of the other positions, I think like the FIDO, which is the flight dynamics officer, some of them to go through all their cert flows take 10 years to get what? to that front room um, position for launch and landing. Um, and even, you know, for front room launch and landing for GNC, you, you still had a, a ways. It wasn't 10 years probably, depending on the flows, but could take a bunch of years now for the ISS ops because they've gone to more of a top down system. I think they try to get you from hiring in the door to sitting on console in about 18 months. And it's, it's monitoring the base station during benign periods. So mm. um, the check engine light comes on, you know, who to call, how to save the vehicle, put yeah. the crew back to bed yeah. and stuff like that. And then as the, the dynamics of the operations get more um, critical and more dynamic, then a more senior person moves on console. So you've got junior during the quiescent periods like crew sleep, where it's just going around and you're replanning the next day, the next couple of days. 
And then as you start talking about visiting vehicles coming up, like a crew dragon or a cargo vehicle or a spacewalk, then you get more senior folks in there. So they, they've streamlined their training because, again, it is shift work. So you get the younger folks in and you want to start using them as, as soon as possible to work on control and stuff like that. Was it difficult to get that internship at NASA? Was it highly competitive? And why do you think you got it? I got it because I volunteered. I said, uh, I just wanted the experience. Um, you don't have to pay me. And so it was a very unique time back then. I, I was in grad school at uh, George Washington University in Washington, D.C. Yeah. Co-op program, which is the, the usual method to get in as an intern at NASA across any of the various centers had shut down between Goddard and um, GW that summer for some reason. And so there wasn't an opportunity when I first started there to get in with NASA. And so finally, after a few months, you know, my roommate and I, since we were new to DC, we were doing tourist Thursday, you know, cause there's all the Smithsonian museums there. And so finally, my dad's like, well, why don't you just call up NASA and see if there's a way to, to volunteer your time to get the experience that way. So I called in November of 95 and, I don't even remember if I just called the front desk and somehow they routed me to HR or something like that. But uh, it took a couple of months because I think they were trying to figure out, well, if this guy's working for free on site, what are we responsible for if something happens to him or something like that? So yeah. February of 96, I started uh, working 40 hours a week for no pay in uh, as a GNC analyst. And so they treated me like a regular intern where they gave me different projects to work on, let me work on different aspects of the branch so I could get a different feel for different areas of, you know, whether it was building and testing hardware. I worked on a couple of spacecraft where we did like the overnight testing just to check out the vehicle before it launched or work on mission analysis to check on orbital mechanics and launch window opportunities for different things, payloads that were going to fly on the space shuttle uh, in terms of uh, they were called Spartan payloads. And stuff like that. And then I worked on a GPS simulator because they were talking about building an internal GPS receiver at the time. So I taught myself C++ with one of those, you know, learn yeah. the learn it in 21 days. I think I only got through 14 days of it because that was enough to get the code I needed uh, working like that. So I worked for free. So it was it was a really unique opportunity to uh, to, to work for NASA, not get paid. And then uh, it was actually funny because then when I did get hired on in 97 after uh, – couple emails with the Senate director, you know, resigning from being a volunteer and, and they found a way to hire me after that. Then all of a sudden security wanted to know who I was. I had to fill out all this paperwork, get sworn in, do background checks and all that. I was like, I've been working here for 16 months at this point. Nobody cared who I was. You were, you were now all of a sudden, because I'm a civil servant and you're going to pay me, you want to know who I am. So I thought it was kind of funny that how security has been situated and stuff like that. But yeah, so I, I got hired on in uh, June of 97, officially you know, sworn in. I was only a term employee at the time because they didn't have a, a permanent slot. So I was a civil servant. Had all the benefits of being a government employee, but I was only potentially there for four years. Um, they had the opportunity to try to convert me at any time during that four years or extend the contract. Yeah. But uh, it was an odd situation. And then, like I said, a year later, Johnson came up uh, looking for more flight controllers. And, and I thought it was a great opportunity to, to really get to fly a vehicle like the space shuttle and, yeah. and work in mission control and all that. So I, I transferred down. And within a year of transferring down, they were able to convert me to a permanent civil servant. So. Is the draw of all this the vehicle or 
the human side of it. You're so good at explaining what you do. What I'm hearing is that you're so technically capable. I feel like that being a flight controller is a pretty good job for you. Is that Would that be fair to say? Yeah, it was a great job. So, you know, being a flight controller, uh, I did it for 13 missions as a GNC flight controller, and then I was part of the mission management team as a representative between um, the mission control team and the orbiter team, so the, the hardware guys who actually own the space shuttle and are responsible for all the subsystems and all that for another 14 missions. So it was it was a great 11 years um, working in mission control. I think the draw, it, it goes back to when I was a kid. When I first star Star Wars back in the 70s, I was like, I, I want to build and fly spaceships like that. And then I took a, a plane ride over Boston. It was like a open house day at Delta. And so, you know, anyone in the community, they, they took you up in a Delta plane, I think it was, and, you know, just to fly, fly in the air. So I was like barely five at the time and had my dad look up, go, who does this? You know, and it was yeah. aeronautical and, and aerospace engineering and stuff like that. So that, you know, since I was before kindergarten, I knew I wanted to work for NASA to, to build and fly spaceships and stuff like that. So it was, it was the dream of exploration and pushing the frontiers to go beyond uh, here living on Earth. Having that dream, I think a lot of us share in that passion and it's fueled by, you know, it's fueled by support from parents and it's fueled by like the movies and stuff that we work. But but only some people actually get to realise it and, and get to be a part of it. And what do you think you have in you that got you there? I think it's drive. Uh, so where know, does I, that come from? Who gave you that drive? I think it was just th- that light bulb went on so early that that's what I wanted to do. And, you know, I, I still talk to kids from elementary school and they're like, I can't believe you, you know, you always used to talk about working for NASA and you've been doing it and stuff like that. So I just talked to a, a friend from high school, his Cub Scout troop, you know, just about career and stuff like that. And he was like, I can't believe, you know, even in high school, you, you knew you wanted to work for NASA and you just followed through on it. And, and so I think it gets back to what it took to be a flight controller because it was really that self-motivation. You had to put in the time and the effort. You know, you only got so far by just following the guidebook. You had to put in the effort to to read all the materials, to schedule the time to sit on console and, and try to learn as much as you could from the guys working the missions or in the simulations, just taking notes and trying to figure out what you would do before you heard the guy make the call and stuff like that. Yeah. So and were, that, you, were you good at school, Mike? Uh, through high school. Yeah. When I got off to college, uh, I, I sort of slacked off a little bit, I think, cause I went to a private high school. Um, I felt a lot more pressure and push in high school and hmm. being on my own at, at Michigan, you know, I didn't have that, that pressure on me as much anymore. So it was my personal responsibility sort of slacked off a little bit there. And, and so I, I didn't get the best grades at, at Michigan as I, I probably should have. And, and so I always wonder, you know, in a parallel universe, if I did better at Michigan, where would I have ended up today? Mm, yeah. I was like, I'm not sure that I really care because I'm pretty happy where I am working mm. for NASA for mm-hmm. four plus years. So, mm-hmm. you know, stay in school and do well because not everyone will have the, the unique opportunity of volunteering at NASA to get their foot in the door like I did. So it was a, a very, you know, unique way that I got to where I am today that most people probably wouldn't be able to replicate. So get good grades and, and study hard. That's all I can say. Do the technical subjects come easy to you then in high school? 
Yeah, I think they did. And even though it was a you know college prep school and you had to work hard, I think that I got the concepts and I got the technical stuff came to me. And so it wasn't a struggle, but it was, you know, because I had my parents bearing down on me and high school was pretty strict. Then when I didn't have that pressure, that's where I sort of ran into problems in college and stuff. It doesn't really matter because you got where you wanted yeah. to. And in a way, you know, I, I don't think you need to have pressure to excel either. You're seriously technically competent. You knew from a really young age what it is that you wanted, which is a huge advantage. Are you a curious person? Was that something that was always in your life, just like figuring things out? Or where did that kind of start? Uh, Yeah, I think so. I mean, I went to space camp twice. That was a great experience, you know, to really feed into that passion for space and see what it was like to be, you know, an astronaut or work in Mission Control and do an underwater EBA. Uh, I got to suit up and do the pool training there at uh, in Huntsville and stuff like that. Um, and even to this day, I read a lot of um, sites looking for new technologies, and I have a giant database and Airtable about um, just laying out like all these different new technologies and, and where I see them potentially infusing into uh, NASA to help us move forward and, and for exploration and, and achieve the goals we want to do. It's always like been an issue where. I'll bring up a topic and sometimes management just can't see the vision of it yet. And then like six months, a year later, the light bulb finally comes on to them just because I don't know if I've just been such a futurist in terms of looking at where the potential is to go that uh, I'm a little bit further out there than some other folks are and stuff like that. But yeah, I, I spend a lot of time on the different forums and, and reading the articles on, you know, because space exploration is hard. I mean, that's, yeah. I don't want to be glib about it, but yeah. there's a lot of stuff we need to master before we can really talk about a permanent colony on the moon or, or pressing out to Mars in terms of, you know, expeditionary logistics and seeing where 3D printing is going and AI so that, you know, the further you get out, you need that mission control in a box just because the time criticality of a, a hazard on Mars, you just can't wait 20 minutes to call for help and then five minutes for them to work the problem and then 20 minutes to come back. I mean, that's almost an hour after you, you know, were in trouble. So you need that localized AI and big data to, to have sort of your HAL 9000 to keep you safe there. And, mm. You know, I'm big into now, you know, keeping an eye on where lab-grown meats are and vertical farming because, you know, that's another part of that supply chain you want to have localized mm -hmm. and, and because you want to live off the land and grow your own food. And I think, you know, 500 days on the surface of the Mars, you'd like a nice, fresh, juicy hamburger, even if it was grown in a vat, then, yeah. you know, another freeze-dried whatever that they've packed. So I try to keep up with where technology is going and, and, and look for those intersections of where it may not be clear that that's adaptable for space, but I can sort of see some of those intersections and connections that some other folks don't look for. Why do you care so much about going back to the moon and then possibly onwards to Mars? Why does it matter so much to you? Well, there was another, I don't know if it was Neil deGrasse Tyson or Bill Nye, you know, the dinosaurs didn't have a space program and look where they are today. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, it's, there's going to be a coming cataclysm and, you know, whether it's a solar flare or rogue comet or other interstellar or we just mankind blows himself up. Mm. I think it's time to start looking to permanently leave the cradle of civilization and, and move out there and move out into the expanse and 
and push forward with humanity. I mean, humanity as a whole is curious. I mean, we crossed the oceans. We learned to fly. We, we, we sent a man to the moon just because it was up there in the night sky to prove that we could. And yeah. so I, I think we need to keep pushing out there. And I, I think that's the benefit. And there's a lot of folks who don't realize that the then the spinoffs from those great leaps come back into your everyday life in terms of, you know, technology spinoffs from the, you know, the Apollo era in terms of microchips and miniaturization of computers. And, you know, the camera in your smartphone these days came from, I think, the Voyager spacecraft, JPL, patent as CMOS, you know, camera for, you know, taking pictures on, you know, a spacecraft and, and heart pumps that came from the space shuttle's main engines and stuff like that. There's more space in your life. I wish we could put a sticker on everything that's spun off from the space program yeah. so that folks are more aware of where that half a penny that we invest in the United States of your federal dollar into space, which doesn't go all towards space exploration. It's also making your life better in terms of farmers knowing um, how their crops are going to do through the, you know, Earth observation satellites and when storms are coming and, and the aerospace part of NASA, you know, the first A in NASA's aerospace, you know, making air travel safer and looking at now drones and, and others, you know, self-flying cars that could potentially come to do an FAA sort of highway in the sky type system beyond what the airplanes do now and biofuels they're looking at to make the planes less um, of an impact on climate change and stuff like that. And then just understanding where we fit into the universe with the, the Hubble's and the Cassini's and Juno's and all the other spacecraft that JPL have launched and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And we're almost out of time, Mike, but um, if you were to kind of, give advice to people just about their curiosity or anything? What, what life lessons have you kind of picked up along the way that you have found have been of use to you? I would say follow your passion. Don't, you know, uh, we get this question a little time about you know, what does it take to be an astronaut? And you can look at the, the list of requirements there and, you know, it's get a, a master's degree, I think is the new requirement we added this year versus the bachelor's and stuff like that. And there's a lot of things you could do checkbox wise there, but the, you have to be passionate about what you want to do, that it's not just a checkbox uh, of things to get off a list to say, that's where I want to be with my career. You have to follow your passion. Like what gets you up in the morning? You know, when oh, Constellation got canceled, there were many days I was like, why do I want to go into work? The president and Congress and public don't really want us to build this spacecraft. Why are we getting up and going into work? So, you know, it was tough at some points during my career to say, I don't have any passion for working here because nobody wants us to be doing this. So why are we doing stuff like that? So you have to be curious, look for those new avenues. Um, I think this pandemic is going to spawn a lot of new garage industries that, you know, solve problems we didn't realize we had until we were in this scenario and, and, and push forward new technologies and new breakthroughs. Because somebody said, you know what, this is a problem and we need to solve it. And so find those passions, tinker. And, and that's why we did the Lunar Loot Challenge, because there's a, a community of citizen scientists and tinkers and makers and, and whatnot that are out there and that want to work on the space program, even if it is just helping come up with concepts for a toilet. They're not, you know, necessarily aerospace engineers or, or whatnot, but they're they're interested enough in space or helping humanity push forward that yeah. they can help us out. Yeah. 
Mike, that was a really interesting conversation. I could talk to you forever. I hope, I really hope I get back. I'm lucky enough to get back to JSC one day and go on another epic uh, tour and information exchange that I had when I met you back in 2018. Or maybe we can get you to come to Ireland after oh, the yeah. lockdown. We'd love to have you well, in Ireland to get you to yeah, talk. That would be great. Yeah. Come out about the Lander program and, oh. and what we're doing with NASA. That'd be, uh, We'd that'd love be it. it. We'd love it. Or you can, hopefully you can get down to a launch one of these days. Uh, yeah. You know, maybe the next launch for the Crew Dragon mission. I don't know. We may still be Major in lockdown. Yeah. That way. I'd love to. Yeah. I mean, I had everything ready to go for the Crew Dragon 2 and then the lockdown happened. So hopefully if the, everything is kind of rolled back, I'll, I will be there. I will definitely be there. But um, It's spectacular to watch a rocket launch. I, I've, oh, I've seen yeah. two space shuttles launch and it, it was a moving experience. Um, I was lucky enough to bring my dad and my son down for one of the last space shuttle launches because my, my son was only five at the time, but I wanted him to experience that before they went away. And what was that like? Uh, so it was spectacular. Just I had seen one from uh, prior to that on the rooftop of a building right at the three-mile berm, stuff like this. But this was, you know, with the crowd, with my son, my dad, my father-in-law, and my brother-in-law, and it was a... Uh, the Atlantis flight in 2010 and uh, just, you know, you see it take off and then a couple seconds later, then you hear the sound just because it takes a little bit for the sound to travel. We were at the Banana Creek by the, um, where they have the Saturn V building there at Kennedy mm -hmm. and stuff. Like that. It's just, it was a beautiful sight to watch the space shuttle lift off, especially after, you know, at that point I had, you know, helped fly it for so long and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, beautiful memories. And may there be more launches, human launches in the future from Florida. And I'm really looking forward to seeing one for the first time when I eventually get there. All right. Well, All definitely, right. Uh, we've got some more plans with, yes. you know, commercial crew going to the space station yeah. and then opening up that to um, private companies in terms of tourists and stuff like that. And then hope we'll be talking about, you know, Orion launching from there in the next couple of years and then by 2024 launching the crew to land on the moon lots to look forward to Mike thank you so much for the chats we'll speak again no doubt thank you my pleasure If you like this podcast or if you like what I do or if you'd like to know more or have a question you can sign up for updates on my website neveshaw.ie this podcast is funded by my loyal Patreon subscribers, the subscription content service that allows me to create and share exclusive videos, advanced episodes of this podcast, provide special deals and discounted offers for patrons of my work. And thanks to those patrons, I get to make the work I want to make and can continue in my mission to get to space in earnest. And in return, I get to include them all in the adventures every step of the way. I couldn't do any of it without their support and I will be forever grateful to them. So thanks. And maybe you'd like to become a patron too. So if you would like to support my mission to get to space as storyteller, further details of Patreon's membership benefits and about this podcast, upcoming events and activities, they're all available from my website, neveshaw.ie account. I'd love to hear from you. But we can connect in other ways too. If you're on Twitter, my handle is dior underscore neve underscore shaw. If you're on Instagram, it's dior underscore neve underscore shaw. Or on Facebook, follow my page, Get Neve to Space. If you just want to watch more content, you can check out my videos on my YouTube channel, Neve Shaw. 
Humans of Space is produced by Mark Gardner and Catherine Cunning at Oxford Sound Studio, Oxford in the UK, with music by Tom Beasley.